Hello and welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today, looking at modern Chinese history through the lens of revolutionary movements in China starting from about 1839 going to the present. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years. This podcast is sort of a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. Uh, you can also send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. There's also a please review, rate, recommend, share on all platforms. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. The links are on our website, www.chineserevolutions.com. Okay, here we go for this episode. This week, we're going to fast forward a bit into the into the main story of the armed uprising against the Qing dynasty. I want to make sure that we're not getting stuck in all the fiddly little details, you know, because this isn't a podcast of whatever book I'm drawing on. This is a podcast of revolutionary movements in China. So there's a whole lot of interesting kind of... Uh, shoot, what's the... Precursors, precedent, precedent, that's the word. I was living overseas for so long I lost the ability to English as well as I had once done. Oh boy. Okay, so, uh, this, you know, one, one question I thought of as I was preparing this, you know, what's the difference between a rebellion and a revolution? Well, I think the main difference is that a revolution was successful. Whereas a rebellion, like, okay, yeah, it happened, they fought, a lot of people died, they had their little corner of the earth that was their, you know, like, their earthly paradise peeking through, but no, the other side won, and so it's a rebellion and not a revolution. Uh, so today we're still drawing on God's Chinese Son by Jonathan Spence, and I'm looking at moving the narrative here to when the Taiping get to Nanjing. And then I'll start drawing more heavily on Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom by Stephen Platt, because that book will focus more on some of the things that are really going to make a difference for the bigger picture of this podcast one of the interesting characters that we'll be picking up on is Hong Rangan, who has not been much of a presence in the podcast so far. He he was there at the beginning, but then he isn't able to keep going on with Hong Xiuquan. Uh, so we'll be picking up with him in just a few weeks. Uh, and drawing more on Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, which also draws more on foreign interaction with the Taiping movement. It also deals with uh, the how the Chinese finally defeated the Taiping Rebellion, and it looks at some of the possible different ways that 
things could have gone. Uh, the I think the guy, if I remember right, his name is Zheng Guofan, the Chinese general who finally organized the uh, victorious army over the Qing. No, no, the over the Taiping. You know, Qing and Taiping are, are clearly two different words. There's no sense mistaking those. Anyway, yeah, I record this at midnight so that you know so that there's less so but then end of day energy anyway so here we go uh today we're going to go from the outbreak of armed conflict to the seizure of their first uh city base and the next two or three episodes are going to cover from december 1850 to March 1853 and the capture of Nanjing. Maybe it'll be four, I don't know. Um, today we're going to cover from late summer 1849 to, uh, I'm going to say mid-1851 fairly quickly in one episode to make sure that we keep the narrative moving forward. And so just as I'm going through, make sure to let the gaps of time sink in. I'm going to try to make sure to lean on when, you know, a few months have passed. Okay, I'm going to try to do that so that it doesn't seem like flash, bang, boom, off we go to the races. That This did take one, one and a half, two years that we're talking about. So mid to late 1849, the Taiping movement has four separate base areas in rugged rural Guangxi, uh, in a, over an area 60 by 80 miles or about 100 by 130 kilometers, maybe about the size of a province or something. This area is on the very fringes of what the Beijing administration could pay attention to. They were plagued by bandit raids. British naval action was driving pirates inland. And traveling from place to place was difficult, so he had to be sneaky. Uh, he had to go in tightly coordinated traveling groups. You know, and this is what the Taiping movement leaders were organizing. So traveling between places was important, especially for Hong Xiuquan, to collect money to support the movement uh, and also to ensure ideological and doctrinal conformity. And when you're starting a new religion, it's really important that you don't have other new religions steal your momentum and go off in their own directions. And, you know, because one of the things you see is that some of his different followers would would evangelize the message and spread it around. Uh, and he's, so he's, he's collecting money to uh, buy the freedom of captured members of the movement, and they're starting to suffer some deaths from persecution by elites. So he's really interested in not having that happen anymore. And you know, it's not just some sort of Christian sense of martyrdom. It's, we're supposed to be winning, so we're going to do what it takes to not have our guys be the ones dying. And they were financially supported by some local wealthy families. Uh, 
who still were forced to live on the margins, like maybe they were mixed blood or they were low on the totem pole in the local government administration and they couldn't get up any further. Uh, but also, you know, some donations were rejected because Hong Xiuquan was wanting to avoid a lot of outside attention. And so during this still kind of underground time, the core quest to fight demons clarified itself for Hong Xiuquan. And so think of it like how you how it is when you're dealing with a with with a paranoid person. They're convinced that there's a conspiracy, someone or something is out to get them. But then if you have somebody who builds a life at odds with the lives of those around them, odd demands, ex extreme reactions to everyday things, weird rules imposed upon others, that's going to build opposition. And so then the paranoid person is going to categorize those people you know, enforcing boundaries as enemies or as henchmen of unseen enemies. So this really is going to turn out to be uh, you know, so kind of the, the mix between Qing forces looking to repress the Taiping movement and Hong Xiuquan's sense of mission you know, it's going to be time to, you know, you know, bring out the big guns and have an actual war. Wouldn't it be nice if we could throw a war and have everybody come? Such a nice war. Okay, uh, Hong came to identify the Qing dynasty in no way friendly to conventional Protestant Christianity on its own. The Qing dynasty was quite opposed to Christianity. Um, and its repressions against the Taiping movement as the demons to be destroyed. So the the Qing were trying to enforce their own primacy, and yeah. So in, in the book God's Chinese Son, parallels are drawn between Hong Xiuquan's thinking and the ideals of the heaven and earth society and the triad society like they would talk about overthrowing the Qing, restoring the ming um, the manchus are the oppressors and the chinese are either their pawns or their enslaved victims um, and so the the new plan that's coming together in hong Xiuquan's vision is to start a new chinese dynasty so that's that's the format that previous Kind of, kind of sort of revolutionary movements would take. So that's what he's going to do. Overthrow the Qing and bring in the, you know, the, the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom. So all through this, Hong Xiuquan is drawing on Chinese classical culture, literature, and myth. Uh, this is a conventional item of professional missionary work. So you, you know, you try to you know, share some orthodox doctrine, you know, some traditional religious thing, but you, if you can, you use the higher level cultural language of the culture that you're trying to reach in order to make your points. So, you know, even if you're trying to avoid syncretism, you do use those examples. And the same goes for political movements. So, like, let's look at the example of Star Wars, and we must fight the evil empire, you know, the the face the faceless fascist minions. 
um, you know, and, uh, you know, you want to be like the colorful, plucky rebel alliance, you know, even including anti-heroes like Han Solo and, you know, it's a way for those living on the wrong side of the law to redeem themselves, help the good guys. You know, so you can see there's a there's a story right there, and so even though we're not in a galaxy far, far away, I can use Star Wars as a bit of higher-level cultural vocabulary to get my message across. And so Hong Xiuquan was doing this, appealing to a lot of different Chinese classics and shared cultural stories and understandings of what's right and what's wrong. And also for him, uh, he was making allusions to the start of the Han and the Ming dynasties, so replacing the the tyrannical Qin, uh, that's Q-I-N, or the Mongol oppressors, the Yuan, Y-U-A-N. So he's falling right in line with the traditional Chinese idea of the passing of the mandate of heaven, as historians have called it. And, you know, he's picking up the Chinese revolutionary idiom, as it were, and he's moving to get rid of the Qing now. So in February 1850, they start talking about themselves as an army, Uh, more and more reports of open-armed conflict, uh, reports of logistical issues consistent with ongoing combat operations, shortages, regular requirements, standard operational readiness levels to maintain, uh, and the further development of formal state and military hierarchy. You know, this guy's in charge, and then here's the succession if he dies or captured or otherwise incapacitated, greater implementation of sex segregation in the Taiping movement. We're not going to deal that we're not going to detail that here, but for this core operational parts of the Taiping movement on the ground level, just understand that there was a strictly enforced division between men and women. Some of that is about avoiding like sexual sin. Some of that is yeah, a lot of it is about avoiding sexual sin and then like looking forward to having family in the heavenly kingdom when that happens. So kind of waiting for then. And then, of course, this is not so much going to happen at the command level. I don't know to what extent Hong Xiuquan, when he gets his palace in Nanjing, is going to be having a harem with which he is regularly involved, or if he just has a lot of female attendants. I I, I don't know what the case is. We'll get there when we get there. We'll talk more about the sex segregation uh, when we get to Nanjing in the narrative here. June 1850, Hong Xiuquan. So this is, is, you know, a year after we picked up, you know, for today. um, Hong Xiuquan summons his immediate family to join him at Thistle Mountain. He doesn't go in person, but he sends a small group of trusted people to convey the message and bring them to him. You can kind of compare this to the Communist Party guerrilla campaign up to the founding of the People's Republic of China in 1949. And 
That, by the way, we will be covering in much greater detail than this, because we'll see multiple revolutionary possibilities contending for supremacy in in China, and you know, considering Taiwan as a continuing Chinese state running on different lines than that of the PRC, there's a lot to talk about. Like, if you want to think about how China could have turned out, like what other paths it might have taken, well, there's a lot in the 1900s that we are going to be talking about. Uh, and so, so here, the communist example, okay, they're coalescing around a base area, like there was one time when the nationalists carried out a purge of of communists, all the communist leaders that they could find, well, all the ones who escaped, they went out to some base area further out in rural China. And, you know, then of course, there's the long march to Yan'an away from one base area to a new base area. And so the coalescing of the, the leadership marks phases of serious coordination and active campaigning. So even when they're locked down in a, in a stalemate or something, when revolutionary movements have stable headquarters areas, they have the leisure to plan for the future, plan for multiple contingencies, you know, deal with worst case scenarios and that sort of thing. Okay, and so for us, here, here it is. Here's the kickoff of it's not just armed bands repelling village militias. It's not just, you know, some fighting. Here we go, you know, late July 1850, uh, Hong Xuquan gets a message from Jesus telling him to fight for heaven. Now, in April, he had worn a robe of imperial yellow openly for the first time. In August and September 1850, there's an increasing concentration of bodies of soldiers gathering arms, signal fires, and communication to coordinate repelling attacks. So the, like the local Qing authorities know that something's up. They don't know all the details, um, but you know they're, the movement is taking increasing risks that, yeah, they don't want to, to bring down the full might of the Qing military such as it was on them they but they're because it's getting closer and closer to when they're actually going to open up and carry on a full war they're taking bigger risks like bulk purchases of gunpowder you know what do you like this on your salad or something no that's 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 war supplies it's a more brazen risk than they had taken before the Taiping military strategists came up with a signal flag system, you know, so they're really thinking about how to carry out a serious war. Now, that's one thing to keep in mind is that, okay, so even though foreign commentators thought that the Qing were weak, you know, it may be true that, yeah, Europe, modern European navies could blow the Chinese navy out of the water easily, tear, you know, take out their coastal defenses. China was still, you know, the Qing knew how to run their own country. They had been doing it for two or three centuries. And, you know, so they, they're, they're a land power. So they, 
so even where this you know 1800s war in china is different from how european wars would have gone they got done what they were looking to do with what they had in front of them so just because it's different and because a lot of people die doesn't mean that the that war being politics by other means did not happen uh they they're setting up formal military units from teams of four soldiers up to divisions of 13,155 these are conquer and hold territory numbers that you're dealing that you're figuring out how to uh, command in consistent ways uh, daily devotional lessons with unit commanders recitation of the 10 commandments study of commentaries by Hong Xiuquan and you know the doctrines by the Taiping leadership, punishment for displays of insincerity and belief. And in the base area, this uh, the the doctrinal you know teaching and everything was really important because of the rapid growth in numbers of recruits. So you have Hakka refugees. You you know they're they're one of these groups that's on the border between being Chinese and not, you know, so they're outsiders kind of, uh, away from, you know, straight up Han ethnicity people. So they were refugees here. Uh, a lot of the Taiping were Hakka, uh, the, the bandits who had been recruited to the cause. So, you know, like it's a way to wash themselves of their old past by joining a revolutionary thing, local members of the movement. And so by December 1850, Qing forces work on surrounding one of the villages in the core base areas. And, you know, also a Qing official was killed in a clash with Taiping forces. So, you know, you can chalk up one for a propaganda victory, like, haha, we got one. So if you remember the deck of cards, from the American invasion of Iraq in 2003, like, you know, tracking down all the old leaders. Well, well, they got one, you know, we got one of the demon leaders. Aha. That's one of the things, uh, with, okay. So Mao Zedong, I think he was the one who came up with this three-step, uh, process for guerrilla warfare. The first phase is propaganda, the second phase is attacks with propaganda value, and then the third phase is conquest and holding of territory, more formal military confrontation. You never stop the first two, even when you're on the third. Well, they, the Taiping had a propaganda victory with the death of that one official in January 1951, the uh, Qing had been trying to surround this one village where there were a lot of Taiping leaders, but the, the Taiping were victorious. They defeated the, a Qing force in formal military confrontation, but after victory is usually one of the trickiest times for a military force. You know, shared danger unites people, but once that's over, other things emerge to fight about, you know, even on your own side. Uh, Hong Xiuquan, 
responds with a five-point summary of the core teachings that Taiping movement members should follow. And then here it is, as quoted in God's Chinese Son. 1. Obey the Ten Commandments. 2. Keep the men's ranks separate from the women's ranks. 3. Do not disobey even the smallest regulation. 4. Act in the interests of all and in harmony. All of you obey the restraints imposed by your leaders. 5. Unite your wills and combine your strengths and never flee the field of combat. Uh, defections by former members of secret societies also prompt Hong to command the group to move to a new base area. So I don't know how much it was an issue of the defection of people who knew all their operational secrets, or it's just like we can't stay here because they can tighten their grip around us and starve us out, so we need to move on. They choose the town of Jiangko, uh, and they take it by the end of January 1851, and the because they targeted it for a few reasons. One, this was a base area for Qing forces and for forces that had defected from the Taiping movement. Uh, And it's a bigger town, it's well-situated, uh, to help the Taiping you know, open up more maneuvering space. Uh, and then one of the things we're going to see is that fighting is going to move to the water. One of the key elements in the Taiping movement forward is that they are going to need to go by the waterways. And that this is how they're going to advance all the way to Nanjing, that they're going to be able to move down rivers, uh, which are basically natural roadways. Um, if you ever watch documentaries about China and you see ro- river ferries, okay, that's like the bus for a lot of these communities, because it's the, those, like South China is really, really rugged. Um, on a trip, I, okay, I told this story in another episode like there's this huge suspension bridge I saw that saves so much travel time. It allows you to go north and south rather than just wherever there happens to be a river and you go along the way that the river goes. So like, you know, someplace 500 miles down river is going to be a lot more straightforward to trade with than you know, someplace 50 miles north or south, just because it's so hard to get there. Whereas you get on a river, you you can just go, you, you just, you just float even, and you can carry a lot more. So, so there, so the, the fighting is moving to the rivers. Taiping leaders leave Jiangko at the beginning of March 1851, and the town is completely burned to the ground in the ensuing combat. Um, March 1851, Hong Xiuquan formally declares the existence of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, and he gets some special message from Jesus again through one of the people who had emerged as a conduit for messages from Jesus, uh, given advice on consolidating the faithful, punishing backsliders, and confidence that Jesus has in the future of the kingdom. And 
there's an additional spelling out of disciplinary measures. Like there's a, there's the execution of various offenders to set an example. You can compare this to the Yan'an rectification movement and the communist base area of Yan'an in 1942 to 1945, purging enemies and putting the fear of God, so to speak, in the you know members of the of the movement. When we get up to the modern period, we're going to dive in with a special detail. Part of the purpose of this podcast is for me to process all I saw in China, so we're we're going to bring it all out in the open. We're going to talk about all of these things. I worked for Chinese media for two years, and you know we do things you know, sometimes on the history of the party. Well, I want to look at all of it. Um, you know, we'll talk about the good bits, the bad bits, but that's a lot later down the road. Let me give you an advanced teaser, though. Kang Sheng is one seriously evil guy. June 1851. Attacks by Qing forces and Taiping forces attempting to link up with each other. Uh, you know, and the Qing trying to stop that. So, um... There's further work on ideological consolidation. Uh, systems created for the tracking of casualties, executions of, su- of suspected traitors. So, I mean, one thing I'll give the Taiping is that they really know how to keep a movement together. So, I don't know what you know, like, like if you compare the, I mean, you, you can definitely see an enforcement of a clear ideology, how much they impose upon outsiders to believe in their religion and to join their army and support their movement, that's going to evolve over time. Uh, If you're in Nanjing, when the Taiping arrive, you're basically going to be forced to join up. Like, there's a confrontation with Catholics who don't quite recognize the Taiping as a Christian movement, which they aren't. Um, They, you know, so, you know, is it okay for actual Christians to join this? But then... You know, so we'll we'll deal with that when we come to it. You know, so the in August eighteen fifty one, the the they they make a breakout from the Thistle Mountain area. So like it's not just you know towns in the, the in this area anymore. They're breaking out of this area to escape concentrating Qing forces and retain the initiative so that they're in control of when they strike. The the Taiping do what they want when they want to do it, not just in response to all those enemy soldiers surrounding them. So you can kind of compare this to the long march by the Communist Party of China. They left a base area in which they were encircled, and they fought their way toward a new base area. It was an extremely brutal march, by the way. The Taiping Rebellion was in South China, but the Communists were quite active in North China. That's an interesting thing that I noticed. Perhaps the Taiping will prove to be too local to South China, whereas the Communists uh, had... They, they 
ranged over a much broader area of the country. Like Mao Zedong is from Hunan, which is kind of in central China, but it's more toward the south. Perhaps, okay, but more on that much, much later. Two, there are two main issues for a revolutionary force. There's, you need to have a solid relationship with your base area, an ability to keep receiving support, but you also need the ability to finally and ultimately defeat the current regime. So, you know, Taiping followers didn't want to leave the Thistle Mountain area, but they were going to be boxed in if they didn't get out and keep moving toward their enemy. You know, to win a revolution, you don't even have to have total support by the population, but you need to convincingly take control of the state, which is inclusive of the government and the people. And right now, the Taiping are guaranteeing themselves another 14 years until they're finally defeated by the Qing, so moving on is the right way to go. Their followers were commanded to burn their homes behind them, and at the end of September 1851, in a spectacular assault, the Taiping forces take their first walled city with all its resources and infrastructure. It's the city of Yongan. Uh, they gain control of regional trade and communications networks. They gain the ability to gather resources. Because you know, they're in a city now, they can raid local rich people. That's um, a fortified base from which to further develop the movement. They gain printing facilities, so that helps their propaganda activities. And they have the benefit of having the whole band together in a place that's big enough to you know, have a party for all their friends. Next week, we will dive into the significance of the Taiping conquest of the city of Yongan. Uh, so we have fast-forwarded a bit through the uh, last bits of, you know, preparing for the actual fight, but now we've started the fight, and things are going to be a whole lot more exciting uh, as the narrative continues. So, again, if you'd like to support the podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. Please uh, send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, you can find those links on uh, chineserevolutions.com. Rate, review, subscribe, share on all platforms. Thanks again for listening. I have been your host, Nathan Bennett, and I'll see you on the next one.